0: So as a um, community, we've been talking about um, the early church. We've been looking at the book of Acts as the unfolding of the command that Jesus gave, the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations. We're looking at all of the different elements of life together that allowed the early church to enjoy this outpouring of the Holy Spirit and this like massive spreading through the Mediterranean and ultimately the fruits of which we're enjoying today. And we started out just kind of looking at the, the culture, the baselines that kind of set up this movement. Uh, one of the first things which I already mentioned earlier was the culture of prayer and ministry to God. And we also have talked about the, the understanding the Word of God, the Bible, as the big story that we find ourselves in. And so I always find when God does incredible things and does what we're just celebrating and singing about, which is bring us from one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Normally we see a, a few different elements in play there. We see an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, God just doing incredible things, and then we see the preaching of the gospel, the word of God, the kind of framing all of these things in the story. Um, and then we, we look at the church when people come in together to this family life of being a redeemed people. What are the things they were devoted to? Well, there's two of them were those I just mentioned the word and prayer. We also have been talking a lot about the devotion to fellowship, which is they're not just attending a meeting together, but it's a, it's a devotion to koinonia, which is this really rich word that means that they were devoted to each other to the point of very tangible sacrifice. So just like the brothers are here from Albania and they're part of our body, it, if, if we want to have koinonia together like this fellowship, we're going to be thinking, how can we... Have a, a koinonia of participation, as God would, would lead us to, in the gospel with them. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm, these guys are on a fundraising trip, so I'm sure you have some ways that we could do that if we wanted to, right? Yeah. Can we, do you have a way to, for us to give an offering or that kind of thing? We do. Yeah. Okay, awesome. So we'll take an offering today, and it's just going to go to these guys. So whatever you want to sow in, we're going to make, we're going to, we're going to do that participation that coin the fellowship together with these guys. Now, of course, that doesn't just mean money. It's inclusive of money. It also means that we, in family, together locally, are giving our lives to, to each other. And we're devoted to each other's... Uh, we're bearing one another's burdens. And in doing that, fulfilling the law of Christ. So that's devotion to fellowship. And the other one was the breaking of bread, which we practice every time that we gather in these meetings. And Anthony taught us beautifully about the wonderful multifaceted dimensions of of what we're participating in when we break bread together. And then that uh, brought us to this response. So we're in about Acts 2.43 right now. And the response of everybody to this wonderful gospel, this power of the Spirit, and this uh, beautiful life together as a church, which is a family of families, Mm. overflows in generosity. So for a few weeks I've been talking about... uh, The scriptural um, baselines. What what do we look at? How how should we understand generosity according to the scriptures? And the first thing we talked about was stewardship. That ultimately everything is from God, through God, and to God. And we're just grateful to participate. There's nothing that we really earn for ourselves. And in that sense, we're under God's authority and command for everything that we do. Um, But God is awesome. Because he... When we're obedient to him, he rewards us for it. Even though it came from him, and, and the grace to steward it came from him, the reward comes to us when, when we walk in the way of the kingdom. He takes the punishment for our sins, but he gives us the reward for our obedience. <laughs> that's a good dad. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Okay, so that's, that's a little bit about stewardship. And then, um, last time we just talked about generosity, about the gift of generosity. What, what a cool thing it is to give and the many things that giving does in terms of reward for both us and the people that we give to. So we talked about how giving is joyful even in times of poverty and affliction and how it reminds us where our provision comes from and how God remembers our offering and uses it to bring spiritual breakthrough in our lives and the lives of our families and nations like Cornelius in Acts 10 how when we give, we cultivate prosperity and we position ourselves for reward, how it knits the household of faith together, both locally and globally, and how giving and generosity contributes to an atmosphere of favor for people who need to hear the gospel. So, you know, a part of the reason the Acts 2 Church had favor with all of the people was that they lived from a source that, that was not worldly. They lived from this heavenly source and they expressed that in the sharing of their lives and their worldly goods with each other. And that's really powerful. That's what we like to call a functional family. No one needs another dysfunctional family, like, hey, come to my church, we're a pretty dysfunctional family. That's how a lot of churches operate. People need a functional family where there's an overflow because we're sourced from heaven and not from earth. That's very compelling. So today... We're going to talk about uh, a kind of disciplined, regular giving, and we're going to look at the pattern that we see in the Bible, uh, which is often called the tithe, which just means the tenth, in order to see how it might inform our disciplined, regular giving. So to start out, uh, we just kind of have to understand a, a bigger concept, which is going to apply to a lot more than how we give with our finances, which is this, discipline is not striving. There's a big difference between discipline and striving or or dead works. And Josh uh, expressed this really beautifully when he was serving communion, that uh, our salvation, well, here's the, the scripture. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Or here's another one. But whatever things were gained to me, that was Ephesians 2. Eight. This one is Philippians 3, 7-1. through 1. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. That is an epic scripture. Both of those make it very clear that nothing we do in the Christian life, so when we talk about behaviors, disciplines, uh, walking in the way of the kingdom, we're never talking about doing something to gain righteousness by our own works. We're always talking about how we live out the gift of God, which is righteousness that is through faith. It comes to us from God through faith. It's not, the, it's not based on works that any of us should boast, but actually we boast in Christ, that, that we would be counted a people who God gifted with a fellowship in the sufferings and the resurrection of Christ. So in other words, striving doesn't have a view of the gospel. Striving is, is, I'm going to engage in something in order to count myself righteous or get somewhere with God. But discipline all happens in view of the gospel. Discipline is a worshipful response to all that Jesus has done for us. So we have to understand that in order to begin talking about how we might engage a discipline of giving, it would be um, life-giving to us. With me so far? Don't sound so excited. Here's a couple of scriptures to help us reclaim Christian discipline. In the same way, faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. James 2:17. Mm-hmm. They seem to have updated the NIV, and it's a little bit more clear about this verse now. In other words, if if there's no action to demonstrate our faith, that shows that our faith is dead. That's that's how we see a faith that's alive. Is it, It's accompanied by action. Second Corinthians 15:9 through 10. We talked about this one before. For I am the least of all the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of Christ in me. There is a labor, and there is a striving according to the Spirit that is holy. And if, if we engage it, we'll be able to say, I worked harder than everyone. Not because I'm something, but because God, through his grace in me, makes me what I am. And in fact, it's not even really my work, because it's the grace of God in me, working. And so there's, there's a fellowship with God when we when we choose to engage discipline, when when we choose to strive in view of the gospel and by the power of His Spirit that we get to enjoy. That's good right there, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the fruits of the Spirit, which a, a, a fruit of the Spirit is, is the product of abiding in Christ, right? He said, abide in me, and as my word abides in you, you'll bear much fruit, or something to that effect. That was a little bit of a T paraphrase. Uh, And the fruits of the Spirit, if anyone has been around church or the Bible much, most people can name them. Love, joy, peace, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, faithfulness. and (laughs) self-control. Awesome. (laughs) Hopefully that's not telling (laughs) me. So one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. So in our generation, we have to get over the idea that engaging in discipline or having self-control, making a choice to do something we don't always want to do, is religiosity or dead work. We have to realize that's actually what God is going to work in us when He's present with us, is self-control and self-discipline. For God didn't give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and love and... So self-control or self-discipline. This is all a part of our presence with God and a part of how we walk with Christ is that we engage self-discipline and self-control. So, making a choice by our will one time to walk in a certain way and then doing it whether we feel like it or not is not religiosity. It's the fruit of self-control, it's the fruit of the presence of God in our lives. Thanks for standing with me, Emma. <laughs> Do you guys need more? Yes. So, I think our primary call, or or at least one of the things that um, Jesus prioritized really big time for us in the Sermon on the Mount and the way that um, he taught us to pray, is to seek the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, not my righteousness, that comes... By works, but his righteousness that comes by faith. And all these things will be added to you. Or, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you recognize the connection that Jesus is making between faith and action there? May your kingdom come is our prayer. That's our faith. May your will be done is our action. So if we're serious about that prayer, may your kingdom come, may your will be done, we're we're dedicating our action, our self-discipline, and our resources to the kingdom of God. Your will be done. Jesus, in more than one place, makes this connection for us. Like, how about this one from Matthew 12? Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is redefining family as these people who are obedient in action in a life lived out to the gospel and the word of God. Just like in, in another place he said that the person who builds his house on the rock is the person not just who hears the word of God, but the person who hears the word of God and puts it into action. So discipline and action and doing are how we... Demonstrate and work out and worshipfully respond to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now here's some great things that discipline does. Uh, Hebrews 12 says, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So it's okay to not always feel like Doing the things that we're going to discipline ourselves to do, giving financially, for example. I'm I'm getting ready to make a case that, that choosing a disciplined generosity w- would be a, a good outworking of our faith, and and here this is going to apply to anything else too, like prayer, or fasting, or however however we work out our uh, our faith, going on a mission in the neighborhood. You know, we might not feel like inconveniencing ourselves to go and trim trees and you know, change light bulbs and all that stuff for the neighbors. But it's a discipline that we choose, because that's a good outworking of the fellowship that we have in Jesus, to reach out to other people and show them how the Son of Man came to serve, not just tell them, but, but be incarnate in that message. But, it's, but later on it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. So what's the fruit of that in our lives? Well, God rewards us for the thing he empowered us to do with a harvest of righteousness and peace. That's pretty cool. I want that. Second Peter 1, His divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. For the sake of time, I'll skip a couple of verses. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. What's the source of all of this? God has provided us everything pertaining to life and godliness. His divine power has given us everything we need, so we're not striving in the flesh here. But then, for this reason, we apply diligence... So that in our faith, in what we believe about God, we will have this supply of moral excellence, knowledge, self-control or self-discipline, perseverance, godliness, kindness, and love. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? It's an incredible fruit to recognize in faith what God gives us and work it out through discipline and diligence in these ways. That's an excellent life. So discipline doesn't give us righteousness, but it brings it forth. It brings forth the harvest of righteousness in our lives. And this is how we are with our kids. We, we're all disciplining our kids, hopefully, so that they will love what is good, and so that they will learn self-discipline. And we ask this question to our kids all the time. Would you like to discipline yourself, or do you need me to discipline In maturity, we, we choose self-discipline. That's what mature people do, is we discipline ourselves so that someone else doesn't have to discipline us from the outside. That, that's a fruit of maturity. And so it ought to be that way in our faith, too, right? We, we ought to, in, in walking out a mature kingdom life, have certain disciplines that we engage, not in order to get us somewhere, although we're going to enjoy the fruit and reward of those things, not to get us a righteousness of our own, but because it's our... Joyful, glorious response to discipline ourselves in certain ways that produce fruit for us and others. Okay, now are you ready to um, focus it more down to finances? Mm -hmm. Awesome. Are you guys enjoying this?
1: Yes, 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 yes.
0: So, I, I would like to present the idea um, that when Christ comes, he ups the ante. Christ ups the ante on all things. The presence of God in the new covenant ups the ante on discipline. So, I'll give you an example from the um, Sermon on the Mount. Do not murder was the old command. And the new command was, was to the effect of don't hate. In other words, he said, if you engage in hate, you're essentially engaging the same spirit that is murder. So, so the spirit that, that would write someone off and, and you know, call them a fool and sort of um, mentally, emotionally dismiss them is, is the same spirit that murders a person. And so, so Jesus said, well, that was the command but I give you a new command. In other words, if, if God is dwelling in us in this new covenant, if his presence is in us, not only are we going to do the letter, we're also going to keep the spirit of the law because we have the spirit in us to do it. Mm. And the spirit of the law mm. is don't hate. The spirit of the law is love. And it's the same with adultery. He gives the example like, well, you've heard it said don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look at a woman, mm-hmm. lustfully, you've already committed it in your heart. Mm. In other words, the, the spirit alive in us through the New Covenant, is going to, through the presence and activity of God in us, keep more than just the command of the law, it's going it's to walk in the spirit of the law. It'll keep more than the letter, it, it, it will fulfill the spirit. And so, um, so often the prevailing view might be that, well, in the Old Covenant there was a tithe, and you had to give this much. And in the New Covenant, Jesus fulfilled the tithe, so I don't have to give any. But, now Jesus is going to up the ante on generosity for us. And he's going to come and, and keep, by his spirit in us, the spirit of the law, which begins with stewardship. In other words, not just 10% of God's in the new covenant, all that I am is God's. And in that, all that I have is God's. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to find my joy in exercising generosity. And I'm going to find my joy even, and we'll talk a little bit practically about how this happens, in engaging a, a discipline of generosity as well. Here's a a good quote from Richard Foster on how in the New Covenant we might look at the tithe and understand how it speaks to us. The tithe simply is not a sufficiently radical concept to embody the carefree, unconcern for possessions that marks life in the kingdom of God. Perhaps the tithe can be a beginning way to acknowledge God as the owner of all things, but is only a beginning and not an ending. I want to read that again. The tithe simply is not a sufficiently radical concept to embody the carefree, unconcern for possessions that marks life in the kingdom of God. Perhaps the tithe can be a beginning way to acknowledge God as the owner of all things, but it is only a beginning and not an ending. That's from freedom of simplicity. By Richard Foster. There are a couple of um, things that Jesus says about money to help us understand in the New Covenant why engaging a discipline is actually really important for us, because there's some pretty sobering warnings about the way that money fights for the allegiance of our heart. Jesus said when he when he gave us the parable of the sower, which is about the word of God and how it takes root in different hearts differently. There, there's you know the the seed goes on the path that's you know taken away by the birds. Some seed goes in the field and it goes deep, some goes in shallow soil and rocky soil. And that's the one that he says, it's choked out by his his phrase is the word is choked by the deceitfulness of wealth. So, so there is a way in which wealth or, or a spirit that is operating around the things of wealth is actually trying to deceive us. And so we have to be on our guard a little bit. He also said this, uh, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then, the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Did you know that, that, that um, the context of the verse about the eye and the body is about what we hope in? The eye is what we look toward, that's what, what's our vision. What holds our hope? Whatever it is, it's going to fill our whole body with what it is. So if we hope in wealth, it'll deceive us, and it'll make our whole body full of darkness, and it will break our hearts and disappoint us. But if our vision is to look to God and to serve Him, and not to serve a lesser master, then our whole bodies will be full of light as well. So there's power in what we look to and what we hope in. Uh, Here's one from the Old Covenant that... um, I just love the phrasing of it. And, and you find this all through the, the laws in the Old Testament. It's really, it's really telling. Now when you reap the harvest of your land, this is Leviticus 19.9. Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. So this is a beautiful command for these guys to harvest their fields in such a way that it leaves a bunch left over for the poor and the needy. We can think about that when we build our budgets for our life. Do we budget ourselves all the way to the end of our provision, or do we leave some for the poor and the needy? Do we we have some leftovers? When you make your, your food budget, do you make enough in order to have some if a stranger drops by? and need some extra, or, or do you have just enough? Do, do we budget our, ourselves so that there's a bunch of loose space around there? That, this, this beautiful command that God is giving us people, leave a bunch in your field so that people can come through and get it. I just think that's so cool. Why? Well, the phrase that follows it is, I am the Lord your God. In other words, if you look to this and your hope is in this financial provision, then it will become your God. But you can be really loose with the way that you handle finances because I am the Lord your God. In other words, being generous is a way that we remind our hearts who our God is. It can be a way that we express when our hearts are already there who our God is, but if our hearts aren't there it can be a way that we discipline our hearts to remember who our God is. So it keeps our heart and our vision in check. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So um, we're going to look at a few scriptures about the tithe to understand the large patterns that uh, the Old Covenant gives us. And there's uh, some good reasons for this. Um, it, It can be easy to sweep away all of the Old Covenant as a law that's already fulfilled and something that we don't need to look at. Uh, but actually uh, the scripture says that that all of what was written in former times was written for our instruction. And so we're going to look at the type, not to get under the law again and its particular curses and blessings. We're going to look to it for instruction about what God values and what he would institute for his people to live out of so that we can consider those as we consider a disciplined new covenant giving in response to the gospel. So um, we're going to do a quick survey of the tithe, and actually we're going to begin before the law. Um, we're going to begin with Abram, or Abraham, as God renamed him, who is the father of faith. Um, and I'm going to do a little bit of summarizing here, I'm going to read you as many scriptures as I can, uh, but it's a big story, and a good story, so I'll, I'll do some summarizing as well. Um, let me read you a little bit from Genesis 14. The context is Abram wins a battle. Uh, these these guys came and they kidnapped somebody from Abram's household, and uh, Abram got all these trained warriors that were within his house, and they went and routed the enemy. And they, they got the kidnapped guy back. I forget all the details of that at the moment. Um, but they get all this plunder at the same time, and and as soon as they have all this plunder, uh, we see this, this mysterious figure who is a type of Christ appear. He's a high priest, it says, and his name is Melchizedek. And Melchizedek comes and he blesses Abram with these words. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies in your hand. So what is Melchizedek saying to Abram as soon as he brings in All this plunder. He says, blessed be God who delivered this into your hand. Blessed be God who gave you the victory in this. So this priest is blessing Abram, and he's blessing God, who brought the provision into him. Then Abraham, or Abram as he was called at that moment, had to do some business with the king of Sodom. And uh, a part of that, Involved him actually not. He decided not to take any of the plunder because he didn't want this king of Sodom to say, "I have made Abram rich." And so he actually decided to forego taking the whole treasure. So he tithed uh, 10% of it to Melchizedek. I don't have the exact scripture for that. It's not very exciting. It just says he gave him a tenth. He gave him a tithe. Um, So he gave a tenth, and then he decided, and actually, just so that you, king of Sodom, don't try to glory over me, I'm actually going to not accept any of it at all. And then God comes to Abram and says this beautiful thing. He says, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. So Abram tithed, and then he just decided to forego this whole plunder, and God himself came to him and said, Hey, don't fear. I am your reward. I'm going to be your protector, and I'm going to be your provision. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. This is how a lot of us feel when it comes time to tithe or give a generous offering or or to forego some kind of provision. But uh, it's kind of need this actually. Like there's this major lack in my life. So and even God comes to him in this this vision and says like, hey, don't worry, I'm going to be your provision. But he's like, okay, that's cool, but I kind of have these you know issues going on. And then God gives him this word. This man will not be your heir. In other words, it's not going to work out the way that you think it has to work out right now. But a son who has your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. In other words, the provision that you most need, I am it, and I'm going to give it to you better than you can orchestrate for yourself. So when we tithe, and when we act in radical generosity, we're, we're creating a place where we can encounter God and He can orchestrate on our behalf better than we can orchestrate provision for ourselves. Jacob tithed as well after his encounter with God. And I, and I like that these all have encounters with God. They have these worshipful, like amazing initiations from God. Oh, before I go to Jacob, I've got to go back. In Hebrews 7, this is really important. Um, The writer of Hebrews takes the whole Melchizedek picture, and he he clarifies that Melchizedek is a type of Christ, and that therefore the whole law of Moses and the Levitical priesthood is under Christ. So he takes the whole priesthood system, and we're going to look a little bit at how tithing to the priesthood looked in the Old Testament as a big pattern for us to see, and he places the whole thing squarely under Christ. Uh, in a very interesting way that we don't have time to go into. But it has to do with loins. <laughs> Look it up yourself. <laughs> Hebrews 7. So, that's important because we see the origin, the first time in the Bible, all put under Christ. And so we need to understand the whole thing as under Christ too. Uh, Jacob type. it says in Genesis 28... Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take, and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, he's talking about provision, and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So Jacob pledged a disciplined generosity after his encounter with the Lord, as a part of how he was going to walk with the Lord. He said, I'm going to expect some things from you, God. I'm going to expect you to be my provider. I'm going to expect you to keep me. I'm going to expect you to return me in safety. I'm also going to give you a tenth of everything. I'm going, to, I'm going to walk in that understanding that you are my provider. And then we see um, in the law of Moses. Uh, so this, it gets really interesting here. It's, it's actually really fun to look into. Uh, There are different tithes, and they have different instructions. And uh, it's really good that we are not under the law of Moses, because even if we did a very well-researched survey of everything that's written in the Old Testament about how to tithe, we probably would not be able to figure out how to do it. It's it's extremely complex. And very smart people disagree about whether there's one tithe and it's allocated to some different things and different times or whether there are actually three tithes that total up to 30% of a person's income and whether first fruits are tithes or whether first fruits are in addition to tithes and then on top of that we've got all these offerings and these you know at this occasion to worship in this way you give this sort of offering and there's one for atonement and there's one for when you bring in your grain And then there's special offerings in order to build the temple and decorate the temple. And there's taxes. We can just suffice it to say generosity is a very big value for God and his people. And it's okay that we can't figure out exactly how and draw all these specific connections to blessings and curses and all that stuff. We just want to look at the broader patterns of how people give so that we can be informed about that when we look at disciplined giving ourselves. Fair enough? Thank you, Lord, we're not under all those laws we can't figure out. <laughs> There's uh, essentially three places that we see the tide going uh, in the Old Covenant. The first one is to the priesthood. And I'm going to help draw a connection for us um, between the Old Covenant and how we meet, might see the priesthood in the New Covenant. Uh, But first the old, to the sons of Levi, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service, which they perform the service of the tent of meeting. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, now behold, I myself have given you charge of my offerings, even all the holy gifts of the sons of Israel. I have given them to you as a portion and to your sons as a perpetual allotment. Can somebody bring me a Kleenex, please? There should be one right behind that curtain. Secret sash. Yes. We're reading numbers, so I know everybody else is going to be getting moved as well.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> this also is yours, the offering of their gift. Even all the wave offerings of the sons of Israel, I have given them to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual allotment. Every one of your household who is clean may eat it. All the best of the fresh oil, and all the best of the fresh wine, and the grain, and the first fruits of those they give to the Lord, I give them to you. The first ripe fruits of all that is in their land, which they bring to the Lord, shall be yours. Every one of your household who is clean may eat it. It just occurred to me, and that's a very parallel to the scripture we've been looking at with the offering, where it says, And they gave not as we expected, They first gave themselves to God, and then in that, they gave themselves to us. In other words, the first offering is to God. It's out of devotion to God. It's out of response to God. But in that, it's given to the priesthood. He says, they gave it to me. I give it to you, for you and your sons and daughters to enjoy forever. This is your inheritance. So he gave it to this special uh, tribe of people, the Levites, who were this old covenant priesthood, for them to enjoy. It was given to God first, God gave it to the priesthood, um, as you could see that also mentioned offerings so there, the um, the Levites, the priesthood of the old covenant or of the law of Moses, um, they enjoyed lots of the offerings and eating all that stuff as well, and then there 's all kinds of stuff already mentioned um, in addition to that that would not necessarily go to the the Levites, but um, the emphasis I want to make here is that It was for the Levites to eat. It was for the well-being of them and their families. Okay, let me draw a connection to the um, New Covenant and the wonderful place that we live now with Jesus. Because the law of Moses was fulfilled in Christ, but that doesn't mean that the priesthood has been set aside. Uh, Priesthood in in the New Covenant is not intermediary as it was in the Old Covenant. That means that no one stands between you and Jesus, your high priest, because Jesus is our intermediary. So we all have access to the throne of grace by the blood of Christ, according to Hebrews 10. We can come boldly before the throne. So no one, no one gets to stand between you and God, but there's still a priesthood. There's still a priesthood that ministers to God and ministers to the people, just like in the Old Covenant. Like You could look at um, Deuteronomy 14, and see this type in the Sons of Zadok, I think it is, where they go and they minister to God and then they turn and minister to people. And obviously, there's still people. And in fact, all of us, in a measure, are asked to both minister to God and then turn and minister to people. That's the essence of what we're all walking out together in, in this um, expression of church in which we all have a responsibility both to worship the Lord and to bring the gospel to the lost. Um, But here's a scripture that will help us clarify that. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Revelations 1, 5 through 6. And then uh, Paul in Romans says, He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. So in other words, the, this this new covenant life that we're living out, it is a priestly duty. And who's called to the priesthood? Well, all of us, in a sense, are called. And, and it, that's a beautiful thing about the new covenant. The Levites were this special tribe. And God said, I'm choosing you as my inheritance, and I'm going to be your inheritance. But we're, we're all invited to be God's inheritance, and he's invited to be ours. Um, So here's uh, practically how we might live that out. Here's a couple of thoughts. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. That's Romans 13, 17. So there's a sense in which um, revenue and honor are distinct, but there's also a sense in which they're connected. Um, in fact, the word honor is time, from which I get my name. Honoring God is the, the understood name of Timothy. The, it comes from two Greek words, time and theos. So, time theos, or Timothy, is honoring God. Uh, that word is really cool, time, because it, it's often translated honor, but implicit in the meaning is value or price. In other words, when you would pay for something in Bible times, the, the price of it is sometimes called timei. It, it's called honor. In other words, it's, it's the value of something. When there's an exchange of value, it's, it's a tangible exchange of property. And uh, this connects with a couple of things. One, Jesus said in Matthew 13, he connected this, this honor to um, the giving of a gift or the rendering of a service. You could look at that. That's where he says, he's talking about the traditions of man and how we can't set aside the command of God. Uh, he, he makes a clear connection that in order to bring honor to a father and mother, uh, it, that's expressed in a gift or a service. Here's where all this is going. Although there's many scriptures we could talk about, I'll just read you 1 Timothy 5.17. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So in, in the new covenant, we're all priests and kings, but there are these special family leaders called elders or overseers interchangeably. And uh, Paul is saying that he says they're worthy of double honor. So there, there's a tangible... Uh, service or a tangible gift that paul is instructing all these family churches to give to their overseers these uh, like you might understand the elder in a village uh, a father who is such a good father to his own family he also becomes a father to the village is a pretty good way to understand um, elders and the new covenant and paul is saying uh, and directly connected to finances you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing and the laborer is worthy of his wages. In other words, there are some people who are going to put so much time into their devotion to the word, the preaching and teaching, bringing a biblical paradigm to the extended family, that those people ought to be given a special provision from that work as well. So that's um, the priesthood. We looked at the priesthood in the Old Covenant, how they have a special portion set aside for them, We're all priests and kings in the New Covenant, but Paul has also instructed the churches to set aside a portion to honor those who have that that, um, fatherly, motherly grace for the village, and especially to establishing them in the teachings of Christ. The second tithe I want to look at is the poor. Uh, We already talked about how um, God gave commands not to... um, harvest the fields all the way to the edges but to leave something and that's kind of an offering that's sort of just a lifestyle but there is also a tithe for the poor and so it says when you have finished paying all the tithe of your increase in the third year the year of tithing then you shall give it to the levite to the stranger to the orphan and to the widow that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied Obviously, God, God has not changed his priorities. There's a lot in the New Testament as well about taking care of the poor, the alien, the orphan, the widow, the stranger. So um, we could look at a lot more, but for time, let's just suffice it to say, it's a very big priority for God to take care of those um, disenfranchised, those people that, that may not have a natural family to provide for them. and. He clearly allocated, not in just this one spot, but a portion of the tithe could be given for that purpose. So we might consider how a portion of our regular, disciplined giving might go to that purpose as well. There's some indication that that tithe is every third year, and not just every uh, it's maybe not a, an all the time thing, um, but some people say that every third year, you also give the same portion that you gave to the priesthood to the poor. So, it's hard to understand exactly how it might have worked out, but broad strokes, it's a big priority. Uh, here's an interesting one. This one is definitely not as prevalent as the first two. Um, and it may be that these are going in order of uh, how prevalent they are. You could, you could consider that as you're just praying about how you want to give disciplined, uh, regular offerings and tithes. Uh, the third one is the pilgrimage. This one's really fun. So it's the priest, the poor, and the pilgrimage are three places that we see the tithe going. Uh, Deuteronomy 14 talks about the pilgrimage. You shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. You shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to establish his name. The tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock. That's a pretty good party. So that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. That's yeah, amazing. How do we learn to fear the name of the Lord our God always? We have to party. This is not written to the Levites. This is this is written to the people. So there are occasions in which we, we might set aside our first fruits, of our oil, our wine, our grain, and our flocks, and just... Hire a bluegrass band and have a big barbecue to celebrate all that we have in Jesus. And that is a way that aligns our hearts back to a fear and reverence for God alone. Does anybody struggle with celebrating? Does anybody have fear around abundant celebrations? I I sometimes do. I need this time. I sometimes have fear around abundant celebrations that there's not going to be enough if I really celebrate and And this is a discipline that I need. And when, Actually, when Lori and I got a super gift last year, we did this tithe. We, we, we set aside a tenth of a tenth, and we did a, a Deuteronomy 14 tithe that was just a celebration of God's goodness, and it, it was a great alignment of our hearts to that point. Uh, I'll keep reading this. I, I interrupted myself to help us understand more about what it's about. So that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. If the distance is so great for you that you are not able to bring the tithe, since the place where the Lord your God chooses to set his name is too far away from you when the Lord your God blesses you, then you shall exchange it for money. Then bind the money on your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. You may spend the money. Listen to this. You may spend the money for whatever your heart desires. For oxen, for sheep, or wine, or strong drink. Wine and strong drink in separate categories. <laughs> or whatever your heart desires. Then you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God. It's not a godless party of debauchery. This is an raucous celebration in the presence of the Lord your God. And rejoice, you and your household. Also you shall not neglect the Levite who is in your town, for he has no portion or inheritance among you. So he's saying, throw this mad party to align your hearts to God. You might have to travel. This might be a family road trip to a place that the Lord your God chooses. It's okay to set aside some money once in a while to do that. Just don't forget the priesthood as well. Pretty cool, right? I'm doing so good on time today. This has been a power-packed, Scripture-filled teaching. Um... Let me summarize, and then I'm going to give some personal notes and um, extra-biblical tactical tips to you. The broadest patterns of the tithe include giving to those who minister to God's people, giving to the poor, and, perhaps less emphatically, to take a celebratory pilgrimage. Those are all things that we might consider when we, when we structure, discipline, regular giving into our lives as an expression of all that we have in Christ in a way to rule our souls and help them return to Christ and avoid the deceitfulness of wealth and the things that are vying for our hope. There's probably a financial reward in it because there's a reward for about everything in the gospel. And again, that's just God being a good father. He takes the punishment for our sin, but he gives us the reward for our obedience. But primarily, it's a loving response that helps guard our hearts and our hope for our great reward. Mm-hmm. Our great reward is God, who has already given us his firstfruits, his only begotten son, Jesus. Jesus himself is our inheritance, and has chosen us to be his inheritance. He left the Father to be united with his wife and become one flesh. Mm
1: -hmm. Did you know
0: that's what Paul was talking about? Or, is it Paul? Mm -hmm. In In Ephesians, yeah. He said, a man shall leave his father for this reason and be united with his wife. But this is a great mystery. I'm talking about Christ and the church. Jesus left the Father He was a first fruit and a tithe of God himself. Why did he do it? To choose us as his beloved and to be united with us in a covenant. Thank
1: you God.